Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Glad you're with us this week on Federal News Radio. And I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of organizations across government that are still figuring out what the future of work looks like for their particular institution. Today, we're going to revisit one of the DOD organizations that's much further ahead than most in starting to answer those questions. Some of our listeners might remember a conversation we had last April with John Willison, the deputy to the commanding general at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. At that time, DEFCON had just put out a white paper and done some initial research on how it was going to start becoming a much more flexible employer. Now, DEFCON is well into the implementation stage. And to get an update on how things are going, John Willison joins us again. Mr. Willison, welcome back, and thanks for joining us once again. And and eager to hear what's happened so far as you've moved through the initial phases of the pilots that you've got going on. But but first, for folks who may have missed that April conversation and some of the others that you did um, around that time frame, I don't want to retread the entire concept here, but I think it'd be useful if you could get us started by just talking a bit about what the underlying concept that informed that paper back then was, and then we can start to talk about some of the things that you've done since then. But what was the basic concept that you wanted to get after here exploring the future of work? I appreciate that and appreciate the opportunity. So, you know, our command, as well as everyone in March of 20, went into pretty much a reactive mode of how we were operating, where our first priority was to take care of our employees, but also make sure we were taking care of the mission as well. So as you referenced then in in February of 21 is when we released the concept paper on future of work for our command. And that concept paper looked at how the why of what we do and the what we do will pretty much remain constant from an enduring perspective. Our mission, what we do for the Army, what we do for for DOD will remain constant. What we imagine changing is the where, the when, the who, and the how. And so we put out a concept paper that that set an objective in the future to say, we want to make sure we can work where and when we are most productive and that we can imagine that giving us the ability to attract and retain our current talent, attract new talent, retain our current talent, imagining the who a little bit differently. And then also excited about the how, being able to work in a more distributed fashion really fully embracing this construct of, of remote work and future of work. So that's the uh, that's the concept paper, basically, in a, in a quick summary that we released in February of 21. And, and just to elaborate on that who piece a little bit, I think, because that I think that's really important. I think the main reason for that is because what you're doing here potentially frees you up to hire from way outside the pretty constrained geographic boundaries that you, that you had been kind of tied down to before. Is that about right? Correct. So, you know, our, our organization, 15,000 government people, um, 162 military to rest civilians, uh, and a large contractor base as well, uh, at 100 locations around the world. You know, so when we've talked about recruiting in the WHO in the past, it's, it's attracting people to come to us. And so part of what was exciting about this flexibility was, in some cases, being able to take work to where the talent is and be able to really expand our view of who can participate as part of our talent pool. All right. So with that useful bit of setup, talk with us a bit about what's happened so far, because some ex- to some extent, I know you've taken this from concept into actual execution at this point. Right. So for fiscal year 21, I mentioned we released the, the um, concept paper in February of 21. 
and, and we're really looking at collecting best practices, collecting measures, uh, really monitoring how we were actually executing. We projected we would be executing a certain way in 21, and then also look at how we were actually executing so that by the time we got to the end of fiscal year 21, what we put out and what we got approved by General Murray, uh, the commander of Army Futures Command, was the way we would operate going forward into what we called phase two or a pilot starting in fiscal year 22, so starting in this past October. And so that allowed us to shift from, as I defined, that first phase of being reactive to now a second phase that's more proactive. That's got a number of, of key, key components to it. One, you know, we're going to make sure we're going to operate within the current policies. So government policies, OPM policies, DOD policies, Army policies. Two, the range of acceptable practices of working remotely versus on site we defined as between zero and 100%. Three, we're going to empower our first-line supervisors to tailor our practices to what they believe is most productive for their, their group, their team. And then we're going to also collect measures of effectiveness because as we shift from being reactive, we're balancing between mission and health. Obviously, we're still concerned about the health, you know, but as we shift to proactive and more enduring, we want to make sure we're being as effective, if not more effective than we were before. So we've implemented measures of effectiveness that really will measure our productivity in all of our different business areas uh, going forward. And so it's really that shift from reactive to proactive with certain elements in place, certain delegation in place, and then being able to embrace some of the things that we had in the concept paper, like hybrid distributed operations, um, like this balance between productivity and flexibility and thinking really of the virtual workplace as a place people that people work and our ability to broaden accessibility to, to other talent. Let me try and work backwards a little bit through a few of the things that you just mentioned, starting with those measures of effectiveness. Um, talk me through a little bit what those are and how they're different from what we might think of in a traditional brick and mortar government workplace. Right. So our claim, our, Part of our justification for wanting to adopt future of work on an enduring basis is that we believe that we've been as productive, if not more productive, than we were before. And so what we're doing is collecting measures of effectiveness to ensure that we actually are and to make sure we understand where we're as productive, in some cases where we're even more productive. So. You can look at the different business areas that we work in, the, the research that we do and measuring effectiveness of the research. And so we've had measures of effectiveness in the past. You know, what's the, what's the investment we're putting into advancing technology? What's the return on the investment? How much of those products are getting into soldiers' hands, getting into use? What is the knowledge we're producing as part of that research? And so we've had measures, ways to measure how productive we're being. And so what we're doing is making sure that really gets institutionalized as well as collecting measures on top of that for people that worked on a team producing a certain set of research, how much did that team work on on-site? How much did that team work remotely? How much of that was hybrid? So that what we've got at the end of this fiscal year then will be that collective set of productivity measures as well as measures of how we operated so that we can really look then what kind of way to operate, produce what kind of results as we move forward from there? 
I don't even know if you think this is relevant, but but do you also have a way to benchmark against the before times to see if certain measures of effectiveness have increased any kind of productivity increases or decreases? Yeah, we do indeed. Uh, and so fortunately, we've had you know a campaign plan with lines of effort in our campaign plan that outline uh, our life cycle engineering work, our research work, our analysis work, our business work. And, and so we had adopted previously a set of measures that we were measuring our productivity and effectiveness as a baseline pre-future of work. So we've got the ability then to go back and look and compare and contrast to see where we're as productive and in some cases where we're even more productive given some of the flexibility we've offered. But probably too early to draw many broad conclusions about where where that's landed since you kind of just started. But I suspect you have some instincts. Oh, great. Uh, yes, too early, definitely. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, we laid for, we, we outlined for General Murray how we want to move through three phases. The first phase being the reactive phase that we were in. The second phase being this proactive phase. And then the third phase being an objective state where we can characterize that objective state in a certain way. And, and we know that to move from phase two to phase three, we'll have to have the data behind it, right? Because we're going we're gonna to expand that even further. We're going to institutionalize it. So yeah, too early, uh, but we know collecting this data is critical. Uh, intuitively, great question. And so you know, the, given the range of what we do, we know that there's certain ways to operate that are more prevalent in some spaces than others, right? So we've got some people that work on very specialized equipment, highly secured areas. And some of those people haven't worked remotely at all since the start of this. And so we know those people are going to continue to have to work that way, and they're going to be most effective working that way. We've got other cases where, and the majority of our folks are working in some hybrid mode, right? Some mix of, of working remotely, but also working on site specific to whatever is going on at that time or the space that they work in. Uh, so we know, and I know intuitively our, our, our team, our employees, our leaders have done a great job of leading themselves through this and really figuring out that balance of, of where and when they're most productive. John Willison is deputy to the commanding general at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. We'll come back and talk more about the future of work at DEVCOM on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Dell Technologies and VMware are working together to accelerate digital transformation across all facets of government, enabling agencies to efficiently deliver critical services, empower employees with wherever and whenever access to data, and prepare for what's next. VMware's innovative app modernization, multi-cloud, and anywhere workspace software work with Dell Technologies' broad IT infrastructure portfolio, helping agencies achieve secure, consistent operations, and faster time to value. Visit DellTechnologies.com federal to learn about our innovations that move our government forward. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu, talking this week with John Willison, the Deputy to the Commanding General at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. He is heading up the Future of Work program at DEVCOM, and he's back with us to talk a bit more about how things are going as DEVCOM rolls out some pilots on the Future of Work. I want to talk a bit about the the, the flexibility that, that you've given to supervisors to, as you said, define the range of acceptable practices for, for the people that they supervise. Can you give me any kind of sense of what that 
trade space is, what the what the range that they're working within really is, and and what they are allowed to define, and and, and what's still constrained by policy, if that makes sense. Right, um, and I know Federal News Network actually did a a story last week with with at OPM, uh, and and they've got their eye on this from a the demand to make sure we've got maximum flexibility. You know, when we looked at this, we initially projected we for for a space for research for life cycle engineering for business that we would probably go in with a constrained set of uh, acceptable practices. And what we found is that was extremely difficult and, and ineffective to do. And so it really became the range of acceptable practices zero to 100%. And so our supervisors have 100% flexibility to decide who comes in, when they come in, how often they come in, where they come in to make sure they're as, as effective as possible. And this is why it's important that we keep our eye on those measures of effectiveness. So we're not measuring people by where they are. We're okay. measuring people based on what they're producing, um, which sounds kind of obvious or intuitive. <laughs> but if you think about the way we used to work, that's not exactly how we used to work. We had a, we had a lot of ways to measure where and when people were. Yeah, and that gets to actually what my next question was going to be, which is, does that management style take a completely different kind of supervisor who's able to think with that kind of flexibility and is able to get their head out of the idea of core hours and a physical workspace? Or has your existing core of supervisors more or less been able to adapt to this? So I wouldn't say it's a a complete new set of skills. There are definitely some new skills. So defining what leadership presence is, especially in places where people are mostly remote, talking about team building, talking about how to onboard people, checking in on people. There's definitely some new skills that we're going to have to train, foster, encourage, and look for when we find new supervisors and are growing the current ones we have. I would say with probably few exceptions, our leaders have done a great job of adjusting to this way of operating. They're part of the workforce as well, right? So they've seen the value of the flexibility. They've seen in providing flexibility, how productive people are, how appreciative people are. And so the motivation is certainly there, uh, but there is definitely a different set of skills now that we're asking our supervisors to take on. There's probably no one answer to this question since DevCom has a pretty broad range of missions and there are different types of teams and a range of practices within each one of those teams. But are there management best practices or supervisory best practices that have started to emerge from what you've done so far as far as what you need to do to effectively manage people who aren't in front of you to make sure that the group still has a connection to one another, even though they see each other almost never infrequently? Right. So some of the emerging best practices we've seen are uh, remotely, especially when people are remote, um, the majority of the time, for frequent remote check-ins. At least once a week, some of our teams have gone to daily check-ins with team members to make sure that because you're not seeing them, passing them in the hall, passing them in the office, passing them in the lab, that you're still remotely or checking in frequently. We've also seen a move towards then bringing people on site together periodically, whether that's monthly, more than that, less than that, but 
even in places where people can can be productive, very productive remotely, still bringing people in, if for nothing else, just to get around the table, check in with each other, see each other and team build. And so that that tempo is different for different people, depending on how much they're seeing each other anyway. But we're starting to see practices of, of certainly remote check-ins, physical check-ins, a, a way to, to, to make sure you're connecting with the team. As you've started to implement the future work across the whole command, how often have you run into policy obstacles, either at the HQDA level or at the DOD level or at the OPM level that you've had to seek waivers or exceptions to policy for? How, how much has that been an issue for this whole thing? I cannot think of a single one that we've run into that has constrained us. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people are surprised by that. But and, and part of it, and, and you see it in the in the spirit of what OPM reflected in, in, like I said, the story that you did last week. This is the way things are headed more broadly, right? And and, and so, uh, you know, the the initial flexibility that was given for people to operate, that that's being extended and then ultimately adopted is being done so uh, for, for all the reasons that we talk about. The, the ability to be productive this way, the, the realization that, you know, we're always competing for talent, both keeping the talent that we have and attracting new talent. And so we have not come up with any exception to policy, anything that we've had to ask waived to include the zero to 100%. It will take us. It will cause us to probably define what people are. You know, we talk a lot about telework, for example, um, and and, and we, it was easy to broadly put everyone in the telework category. What we've realized now is there's different there's different classes within that. So remote work as a subset, as OPM defines it, of telework, where where someone is designated a remote worker, and and doing that means they can work up to 100% of their time remotely. So where we categorized everyone in one way before we are going back now and making sure uh, we're using the right right approval mechanisms, the right terms to, to really capture how people are actually operating. But again, we've seen no constraint in how we want to operate. I should have asked this earlier when we were talking about the ability this has given you to open the aperture of geographically where you can hire from. I'm wondering if you have any data, maybe not in your head, but maybe you can get back to us on, on like what the scale of new hiring that you've been able to do under this construct that you couldn't have done before? I mean, for example, have you been able to hire a whole bunch of new people who've been teleworkers or remote workers from the start, which would have really been an impossibility under the old way of doing things? Right. So we, we certainly have examples of. Um, I know just in our headquarters that uh, we have uh, a number of examples where we have hired some talent that we couldn't have hired before because in the announcement we put out, you know, location unspecified or remote work wherever you want. Um, and, and so we've hired um, someone that's head of our experimentation that's in, in a geographically dispersed location. We've hired people on staff. Uh, and, and I know throughout our command, people have done the same. They've attracted some talent that we would not have been able to attract before. It is going to take us working through this period. You know, we've got a talent management strategy where we look at six different talent domains broken down into seven, 70 different competencies. And we constantly are assessing what talent we have against what talent we're projecting we're going to need in the future. 
and, and then from that data deriving where we have to go to get the talent that we need to fill gaps. And so we're already seeing pretty early in this, the ability to attract some talent we hadn't been before. And it's, it's one of the things I'm most excited about as we go forward, because I know that's going to be the case across the board. And it probably matters a lot, not just for attracting people, but for retention, because anyone that you're going to be competing with for this talent is going to offer basically the same thing, I imagine. Correct. Uh, yeah. And so, so we talk about this being because we've adopted this so broadly in a, in a proactive, enduring way. We believe we've flipped what could potentially be a challenge into a huge opportunity. Uh, and you're right, especially in our case where we've got over 10,000 engineers and scientists. Uh, if we don't do this, someone else is going to. And, and we've seen such receptiveness to this flexibility, not a prescribed certain way to operate, but being able to give people a flexibility uh, and, a, and a predictable flexibility and an enduring flexibility is really a competitive edge to, to keeping and retaining talent. Talking with John Willison, the deputy to the commanding general at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. Another short break. We'll come back and talk about what's still ahead for the future of work at DEVCOM on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbio. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A few minutes left with John Willison, the deputy to the commanding general at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. We're talking about their implementation of a new future of work concept across the entirety of the command. So what's next? As you said, you've just started phase two. I, I imagine from a lot of what you've said so far, a big part of what you do next is just going to be data collection and seeing what works and what doesn't and how to refine and improve things. But more broadly, where do you see DEVCOM going and expanding this future work concept? Right. So for uh, this fiscal year, certainly an, uh, an eye on the data. So, so we've baselined what data we're expecting people to collect. We're holding quarterly reviews with our directors to see emerging trends, to see what that data looks like. So that by the time we get through a full year of operating, in, the, in this proactive way, we've got a good look at the data. Uh, so that certainly is a priority. Uh, another priority for us is as we go into this year with new projects or continuing projects, we're expanding the talent that's available to people, talent that's available to work on those projects beyond geographical bounds. This is one of the key aspects is, is how we define the objective state where we've got agile collaborative teams across geographical locations and across organizational boundaries. And so people are able to grab the talent that they need, no matter where people are. And then also, as we go in, this notion of being fully inclusive of opportunities without really any boundaries. And that applies both to our current workforce as, as well as the uh, new employees we're trying to attract. And so we think we're going to see some new practices happen with the confidence that this is enduring for us. This is not something we're going to reverse. So with that confidence, people are able to pursue some of these exciting things that look across geographical boundaries, look at organizational boundaries to get after the talent that they need. And we also believe, given what we do, and we've seen some of this as well, that innovation is really going to come at the intersection of having people collaborate that hadn't worked together before. So it's when you put people together like that, 
that have new ideas, that have a collision of thought or a collision of, of opportunities that we're going to spur on some new innovation. That, that idea of being able to sort of assemble a purpose-built team to solve a particular problem, borrowing talent from across the organization seems super compelling to me. And I'm just curious, to do that effectively, do you need better ways of discovering the discrete pools of talent that you have across those 10,000 scientists and engineers? How, how, how well is your talent understood right now? And if I'm a project manager on a particular thing, can I easily go out across DevCom and, and find the people that might be able to help me with, with whatever thing I'm working on? So we've got the, the advantage that five years ago, we really put a huge emphasis on talent management. And as I referenced, six talent domains, over 70 different competencies, and we mapped the talent we had to those 70 different competencies. So we know where our current talent sits, right? That's what we refer to as our command at rest. For about 15,000 people, where the talent sits, what talent we have. The part that we need to work on as we move forward is how do you connect that? How do you make that discoverable? How do you connect that with the people that need a talent on a project that is just getting started or a project that's going on? That's our next set of activities is to take the data that we have with the talent that, that represents the command at rest. And then every year, every time we start something new, the command in action how do we map that talent data to the project and need data? So project managers are able to find talent that exists when they need it. And as importantly, and you say it's exciting, so you can imagine for our engineers and scientists, the prospect of being able to self-nominate or to look and stick your hand up without having to physically move to participate in a new exciting project that's going on somewhere else that you wouldn't have known about if we hadn't adopted this way of doing things. That's really the one of the most exciting parts about this whole endeavor. I, I think last thing before I let you go here, I, as you said, this is the direction things are headed, but it, as far as I know, DevCom is really the furthest along of any DoD organization that I've heard of up until this point. I'm sure you're getting calls from your counterparts across the department and across government on how to do this. What do you tend to tell people who call you up and ask, how, how do you succeed? What are the gotchas? What do you need to make sure you do up front to, uh, to make this work well? Yeah, so great question. Um, we're, we're probably less concerned about being in first place as, as, as being somewhere in the front pack. Um, and, and we definitely want to lead by example because we really not just see this as something we have to do, but something we absolutely can do to build more, better innovation, better productivity. I think one of our staff shared with me a statistic earlier this week about uh, this, our work having reached over six, six million people in 10 different countries. And, and so we are definitely getting calls from other government agencies, other organizations, uh, looking at what we've put in place from a policy, what best practices that we've adopted, what things that we had to do there's some critical components of what we've done is not not constrain people, not try to tell people how to operate to fully empower first line supervisors and, and trust in your first line supervisors. You know, when we say work where and when you're most productive, that's a conversation between employee and manager. Right. That's not just something someone unilaterally decides. You know, so we've had to fully empower and trust those first line supervisors, provide them the tool and the trust that they need to move forward. And so that's been one of the, the critical parts. And then as I mentioned, really from an enduring point of view, is think hard about what productivity and effectiveness means. 
and make sure we can come back later on and see and when we say we've been as productive as we ever have been, do we have the data behind that? Not just to defend it, but to look where productivity has even gotten greater because that's going to point to best practices as well. Uh, and, and so those are some of the tips and tools, but but again, it's sharing as much as we can from uh, the concept and from our implementation plan. And, and the other part I would say is, and you, and, and you brought this up, this foundation of knowing what your talent is, is absolutely critical. If we hadn't had that foundation of thinking about what spaces we work in, what talent we need to work on that space, we wouldn't have had the foundation to move forward. And so you, there is some work if you hadn't done that to go back and do that as well. Yeah, and sorry, one more thing. As you do move this into the long term and make this just an enduring way that that DevCom operates, how, how much of it do you write down? Because you're not always going to be there to to shepherd this this way of thinking through. Maybe it becomes so culturally ingrained that you don't need to be. But do you need to document this in any way in in policy and procedure? I mean, the old way of doing things certainly was. Or is the less you write down about it, the better? That's a great question. Uh, I would say we, we need our culture to move this way, that, that people are not going to adopt it because it's in a policy or something that came out of our headquarters. Those that are adopting it are adopting this because they've seen the potential and the value of it. Uh, where we do from a system point of view uh, and are placing an emphasis on, you know, what collaboration tools, how do you share data? for people that are working remotely. So there is some codifying it in systems, codifying it in an infrastructure that supports this way of doing it because we want to operate as an enterprise. So you don't want people to have to figure out how to do that project by project. You want that to be adopted as an enterprise. And so we believe the culture will get codified in that support system. But, but again, like we compare ourselves to other folks, right? Um, and frankly, as someone who spent way too many hours in an airport this week because the airlines are having a lot of people leaving. Um, we're not doing it as a defense mechanism only. We're doing it because we absolutely believe we have to. But you're going to see some of that, I think, just internally, right? Employees, uh, uh, information workers are going to gravitate to the most exciting things to work on. And the, the culture that most embraces that innovation. And, and, and so you know, we're, we're going to see that be a motivator internally for people to share best practices and to make sure they're part of that as well. John Willison is deputy to the commanding general at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command. He joined us to talk about progress on the future of work concept at DEVCOM. And earlier in that conversation, you heard a reference to a conversation that Federal News Network had with the director of the Office of Personnel Management. We'll hear that conversation next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbiv. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we've been talking with John Willison from Army Combat Capabilities Development Command for most of this hour about the future of work. And as you heard him mention during that conversation, the Office of Personnel Management is trying to be helpful as DEVCOM and other agencies think through their future of work plans. OPM is out with a new guide on that very topic. My colleague, Nicole Agrisco, talked with OPM Director Kiran Ahuja about the guide just before its release. This is an extended excerpt of that conversation. 
there is a shift, you know, for those of us who've been watching telework in the federal government. And I'll tell you, I was the same way as a manager. Like, I can't see my employees. Like, what are they doing? And, and kind of holding ourselves accountable. And this moment in time over the past couple of years have has really helped us shift. And I think we are moving into a new type of a work environment, a hybrid work environment. And that's what agencies are trying to figure out. They know that what we've been able to do, and because this pandemic has really put a focus on workers, that we really want to support them. We want to support kind of what's involved in our lives around flexibilities and childcare, but also knowing that we can be really productive. So we have this guide coming out. We are also pulling together trainings and information around how to manage in a hybrid work environment, how to operate well in a work environment, as well as a new website focused on future of work. So there is, we are really leaning into this. This is an opportunity we know as agencies move towards, you know, what that new environment will look like. We want to be ready for that. So along the telework lines, so the the new policy, a new website coming out, more guidance on how to, Mm -hmm. to manage, that sounds like something that agencies have been asking for in a sense. Mm -hmm. I wonder, on the telework question again, Mm -hmm. are there other things that need to happen even beyond that? I mean, members of Congress have even questioned, Mm -hmm. do we need to update telework laws? Is it time for that? Because I think so far, you all have kind of been operating maybe within the bounds of the current policies Mm -hmm. and regulations that are out there. That is something we're anticipating as well. I think we're kind of taking this in incremental steps that there has been a complete altered mindset, I think, across the board with like employees and managers. As I mentioned, kind of my own personal orientation, there has been a challenge around kind of buy-in before we kind of, you know, went into the pandemic. And and to no fault to kind of anyone out there who was who was skeptic, I think it was just really understanding what this could look like. And, and I think the pandemic has, you know, tried to take, you know, make lemonade out of lemons, we've seen that we can really do this work well, and we can be really creative and innovative. And so I think that the 2010 Telework Act had a version of what we thought, you know, or what we envisioned telework to be. And certainly we are having discussions internally and with our, our, uh, the Chico Council, which has been a great resource for us around how we think through these ideas. So we're pulling this all together to, to evaluate the limitations we know that exist in the law, how we might want to think about where we want to build in more flexibilities. I think we also need to be thinking more about remote work and what that means. And that really, you know, we haven't really tackled that. So absolutely, you know, there is, there's going to be that longer term, like, do we need additional legislative action to allow us to truly live into these flexibilities and be competitive? Can I ask you how you're thinking about telework and remote work and some of these flexibilities for OPM internally? Um, Mm -hmm. You mentioned at the beginning that, you're in the process of sort of rebuilding the mm-hmm. the agency from what we saw over the last couple of years. And I know OPM has lost staff and experience and, and all of that. So I just wonder how you're thinking about maybe applying some of these flexibilities that we just talked about to the challenges that your own agency has. Sure. I think, you know, we're probably doing what I know my colleagues are doing across the federal government, which is we are, you know, sitting down with our with our leadership and and determining, you know, if, if we actually looked at every position, right, could that be something that could be done in, you know, some type of hybrid form or predominantly telework, or in some cases, remote work. And also, I think really understanding, Nicole, that, you know, we've got a huge segment of our federal government that can't 
telework, you know, and and I think we're wanting to try to weigh those equities. Those have been just some hard conversations. So even with an OPM, we know there's a segment of our uh, workforce that has to show up. And so we are certainly having those discussions, you know, since we are positioning ourselves to encourage greater telework and remote work in the federal government. Certainly, we want to bring that back home and do that in our home court. But I, I think there are these important principles around both. We know it's it's something that our employees desire. Is it possible with the position? What does it mean around equities within a program office, within the larger agency? And then also, what it mean, what does it mean for our footprint, right? I think agencies and ourselves are thinking through what's going to be the impact. And you know, the way I'm looking at this, Nicole, is that this has to be an iterative process. We have to kind of try this on and, and really see what works and continue to get that feedback. Certainly, we want to work hand in hand with our unions as well around these issues. So an important question and and something we're certainly discussing internally right now, as we know our, you know, our agency partners are. I definitely wanted to make sure I asked you a little bit about your thoughts and priorities on early career talent, because I know that is one of your priorities Mm -hmm. and perhaps fits into that second bucket that you mentioned of rebuilding the federal Mm -hmm. workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen the regulations that have come out so far on flexibilities for interns. Mm -hmm. I think there was another digital core program. Yes, yes. I wanted to ask you specifically about pathways because Mm -hmm. it seems as if that has some struggles. And Mm -hmm. I just wonder from your perspective, what's going on there? Why haven't agencies been able to use that? And how are you thinking about maybe shifting things with the Pathways program? You know, when I think about being a model employer, one thing that I think we often overlook is that we are a mission-driven organization. There is like amazing work happening in the federal government. And we do a disservice to ourselves and to the rest of the American public to not talk about it more, not to talk about it in a way that we're getting our message out there. And so that is going to be a big focus for me in concert with my colleagues across the government. And I think a real commitment collectively that we have to public service and the power of what we can do, the good that comes from government. And I do think this kind of early career talent, even younger generation, like they are motivated by mission-driven organizations. So we should be winning on that point. And so there's more we can do there. I think, you know, related to kind of getting into the nitty gritty of of pathways, we saw the post-secondary hiring reg that we put out, and we're also going to be pushing out a recent grad reg that is to kind of supplement. And I think you know, really, Nicole, in a lot of ways, this is kind of acknowledging where we've had those challenges with pathways, but we are focused on improving pathways and really fine tuning. I think, you know, I think the challenge in any of these programs where we were trying to address one challenge, which was we need to have a process and a particular pathway of how we bring in early career talent. We we can't completely circumvent the competitive hiring process, but at the same time, We can't swing all the way to the other end where we just make it really challenging for agencies to be able to bring in the early career talent that they need. And so we are working to fine tune the pathways right now as we speak. We have been, again, working with our amazing Chico Council to kind of understand those pain points and really tweak them. And there's a real commitment from us to pull that together. And I look forward to sharing more of that with you. And and I hope I can have another conversation with you uh, as we dig into that, because I think both the, the regs that one that's out, one that will push out that I think gives a real opportunity for agencies right now 
to recruit and to recruit in a big way. I think one thing I want to mention just about the post-secondary hiring reg is that, you know, now you can hire up to a GS-11. So if you think about kind of this idea of DC known for unpaid internships, you know, like we kind of <laughs> lived off of unpaid internships. And of course, I think that's not the way to go and, and certainly not what we want to stand on as far as what it takes to to work in DC and the fact that we want to expose so many people to the experience and, and wonder of federal government and the, and the good you can do. But also we know that like students in schools, like this idea of like, what's the traditional and non-traditional, that is totally flipped. We have students who are working jobs outside of school, they're supporting families, they're supporting like extended families. And I think, you know, we're also trying to say that here's an opportunity because we want to set up as a model employer that the federal government is a pathway to a good paying job, you know, where you can be unionized, you get a generous set of health benefits, you can think about retirement early, which we all tell ourselves once we get to a certain age, I'm 50, well, I should have started saving a while ago. So I think this is all tied into that, Nicole, a long way of saying, I know Pathways is a pain point, <laughs> we're on it. There's a lot more I could ask you about, but looking at the clock, I wanted to give you one last opportunity to tell us about any other priorities that you might have that we just haven't covered yet. I think, you know, what I would might mention is just two things in particular, kind of first and foremost, we had a, a great event with the vice president recently to really hone in again, how we want to be that model employer and the importance of unions in our, in our workplace. And it was a great opportunity to roll out guidance that OPMs, you know, has issued and working on. That's just a beginning of a whole set of uh, guidances that we'll, we'll share around how we can be forward facing and, and informing individuals who come into the government, you know, if they're part of a bargaining unit, information about their union, if they are, and be able to remind individuals who are already in government that, you know, their union and, and information, you know, oftentimes I've been told we'll get calls to OPM where people have been in government for a while and don't know if they're part of a bargaining unit and part of part of a union. So, you know, that's really important because I think, you know, we want to set the tone here of the importance of what unions bring and supporting and really building and growing a middle class. And again, you know, I will say that I think sometimes we don't say enough how the federal government is really a good paying job in a lot of respects. We want to be able to position the federal government as that um, with all its host of benefits, as well as historically, it has been a pathway to the middle class for, for communities of color as well, you know, a place where for the African-American community, that's where they were able to, to build their careers, where they didn't have those opportunities before. That's OPM Director Kieran Ahuja talking with Federal News Network's Nicole Agrisco about OPM's efforts on the future of work. Earlier in this hour, we talked with John Willison, the Deputy to the Commanding General at Army Combat Capabilities Development Command, about what DEVCOM's already done on the future of work. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's show, as always, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Also find us in your podcast feed, subscribe on Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serby. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. News impacting feds and contractors, plus Mike Causey's unique perspective on pay, benefits, and retirement. Subscribe to the Morning Federal Report at Federal News Network.